Good morning, people. I'm going to record this stream for some people who I talk to re regularly. Maybe I'll break it up into segments. <clears throat> so my co-host, Hera Reed, a.k.a. Chicken Char, a.k.a. the Madman in Cali, was saying that... Um, He's got the best alkaline dietary supplement ever, and it's putrefied meat, because it's highly alkaline, and it turns into ammonia. So that was very interesting, and I'm going to have to do some more research into it. I'm saying sugars decompose to acid, and meat and fats, fats decompose to alkaline. Interesting stuff. So, <clears throat> I have been making good progress on this shitty job of getting Azure functions working. And uh, at $10 a month, it's still pretty expensive. And I'm loath to even pay that for the storage. $20 a month. That's if they're not even if not safe if you're not even using the function. So it's not the um, the best and cheapest solution. But uh, we're going to continue with our learning process. And if you go to school you pay a lot more. So I had shut down all my functions. So here's what I found out so far. The current Ansible implementations implementation of the API are pretty lame. The module. But the Azure CLI is written in Python with an MIT license. So the package that wraps the CLI in Ansible could later actually call the functions directly. So I'm moving to that, and then later we can just um, package it up so that there's a module that uh, calls the uh, functions directly and not even via uh, invocation. <clears throat> so that's good. That's going to save us a lot of headaches, a lot of researching into Azure. And really, I'm already sick of it. Um, I think um, using something like Travis or Actions, I'm going to continue looking for cheap solutions for executing code free execution, so to say. And um, we're going to uh, keep you informed. So Oh, and my deep learning models, 
I made a next step on that where I'm converting the GCC data to tabular format. So my introspector project has a parser that parses out the tree structure of the TU file into a JSON. And then I can just run JQ on that to manipulate it, so it's nice. So now I am creating tables of data based upon the different data types, tabular form, And really, um, once you get past the globals of a function, you'll have multiple tables because for each function, you'll have a table of the implementation. So you could have multiple contexts creating different um, training sets. We'll get there. But I'm definitely making progress now. And I found a uh, Python feature, <sighs> AutoFeet or something, I'll get the name. But basically you just, you give it tables of data and the relationships with it, between the tables and it will then generate the training data for you. Um, the feature sets with like count of unique these and mode and different um, and different features. Now, mode is an interesting one. I think it's the most commonly occurring item is the mode, and that's great. So the the mode of the integer, I think that's what it is, or is it the middle item? But anyway, the most commonly occurring item in the integer constants is zero. In this one project, I think Linux kernel. So they've got multiple zeros occurring, and each zero is being used in a different way. So that's kind of neat. Our city water tower is just spewing water again. They just release extra water and tons of it. Oh, and I've been playing Minecraft with my son, and there's this mechanics with a K, and it's a great, interesting mod um, that lets you uh, build high-tech equipment, and you have to mine stuff with it. So we're playing it in survival mode, and we're going from the beginning, and we built our base, and then we did wind mining. And we got uh, different equipment. And then we built a heat furnace and a metallurgic converter. And that is um, used to create iron, uh, steel from iron with carbon. So we're learning about that. It's kind of interesting. So we're having a lot of fun.
with Minecraft and learning. Very positive experience at Minecraft. So let's talk about some of this free code ideas. So one is you've got Travis, which is for open source projects. And when you commit your code, it'll kick off a build. And um, I was working on that for handling and collecting data from the build. So you could use it as your file system, you know, like a storage like just produce data in your build and then reference that data and read it out again. Um, so that's one way. Now there's these Microsoft GitHub Actions, which I haven't tried yet, but supposedly will let you do similar type code build stuff on commit. So we'll look at that. Yeah, and um, then you've got the Google Cloud Shell for running. Um, you've got the Google Cloud Shell for running uh, code, but um, you have to spin up the VM first. Now you can use the API to do that, but you'll need another function to spin that up. Then you've got sdf.org, which has a lifetime membership for $30, and you can run code there. But it's kind of a pain. And they don't have Git or anything like that. So they're kind of restrictive. Default restrictive policy. So those are some of the options for getting free executions, free CPUs. And um, obviously you've got the Lambda functions. And you could probably get like the tiny free web hosts for launching things and um, maybe a simple shared hosting that runs PHP or something would be um, you know one of those shared web services we'll have to explore that entire area afterwards um, because maybe you can um, host minimal launch functions there. But I would be very careful with limiting the scope of what they can do. You might have to give them some kind of credentials. And, those could be, could, and you have to assume that anything that you put onto those hosts can be compromised. So we'll have to explore this. I don't mind paying for things. 
I just don't like paying $10 a month for storage of functions that aren't being executed. Now this also is going to get into why do we have to store so much stuff? Why are we installing libraries when we're only executing a few lines of those libraries? And if you do smarter profiling, could you remove all the code that's not needed? Assuming that you know how it's going to be used. What if it would just download the code that it needs on the fly? It's like, oh, wait a second, you called this function for the first time. I haven't seen it. I'm going to throw an exception. I'm going to download that particular function and then build a new image that contains it. And then you can call me on the new one. That'd be pretty cool. Dynamic loader. So we've been thinking about encoding. So if you look at these numbers, what is it, the Shannon code or something? So if you sign like one bit for the zero, another bit for the one, and you look at the most probable values of a of instant integer constants, I guess if you created a uh, a decision tree, or probabilistic ability tree. You put the most probable things on one side, created bits for them, and their bit encoding would be the shortest bits for the most probable. You have variable length encoding. So instead of knowing the size of the field, you would just search. I guess you would take the maximum size. You would read the maximum size, like 8 bits. But you would only search <clears throat> or even if you use that as an index into an array. And you always indexed the books at the beginning of the array. Those would probably fit in cache. We'll have to look at how big the cache lines are. Maybe the whole thing will fit in the cache. Yeah, so maybe we can um, come up with some things, and uh, maybe we'll just have uh, one bit 
one feature for is it zero and one feature for is it one and pick like the top 10 items and just create one feature for each of them a one hot encoding Is it max int? You know, there's some huge numbers in there. So the humongous ones we could just encode with one hots. And things like 400, 500, 600. I mean, how much of that data do we need? How much of that information do we want? Well, obviously we need all of it. And then we can also talk about how is this number used. So we can start putting feature flags in. Like, is it used as an array index? Is it used as an array index in this array? <clears throat> so once we start assigning the... Um, once we start assigning the values, put them in the, the, the graph, you'll get some interesting structure out of it. You'll get the, um, is it, you know, you'll have things like, <clears throat> well, once we get into the structuralism, like, how deep are the maximum nested expressions, right, in your code? So if you've got, and I might not have published any of this stuff yet, and this is really going to go into some deep stuff, so I'm going to take a cut here. I'm going to say thanks for listening to the first part of the podcast, and we're going to take a break and come back with some deep shit. All right, thanks. All right, thanks for coming back and listening to the second part. <clears throat> so the idea of the structuralism in code is that we will know exactly what type of structures are created in the ASTs in a given program. So we'll say, hey, this program has expressions that are nested maximum 20 deep. So our coding convention is that you can't have 100 expression deep expressions. And we would actually optimize the compiler 
so you won't need such humongous expressions. And that will be transparent to the actual compiler itself, like the optimization of the tree structure. <coughs> could be um, done, think of a state machine that describes uh, how the tree structure could be with different probabilities. And then once it reaches like level 19 in the expression tree, the probability of continuing is zero because it's been trained with a bias. So it would stop and say, hey, you can't continue. I think this is a really good idea. I like it. I mean, not just because I created it, but I finally, because I can articulate it a bit. So yeah, like a state machine with probabilities, but more than that, I was thinking actually creating structures themselves. And if they're recursive, okay, yes, we will have some kind of state. We don't need to say the structure of expressions at level one, structures of structure of expressions at level two. We'll just say recursion twenty. But you'll see things like common if expressions that occur a lot. And you could say like, not only is the if interesting, you could say like, if the name is not null, and people copy that all over into the code. Well, that's gonna get a lot of hits in the statistics and the machine is going to learn that that is a common sub-expression all over the place. So if someone forgets to put that in, that should flag some error saying, oh, you forgot to add if name is not null, especially if you're using name or using this type of data. So we want to kind of associate that to a function that takes the thing that has a name, some type that has a name, and now this is where the um, auto feet feet talk is interesting. So she was generating features and those features are going to be like this attribute paired with that attribute and then let's say divided by each other or added to each other or the logarithm of it added to each other so different derivatives um, as features 
and then they would evaluate the significance of those features in predicting the results. Now, obviously, you need this is for like some kind of supervised learning that has some results. But I think, um, given a large amount of data and complicated structures with some optional fields, this predictive learning could just say, in this table, what is the value of this field given all these other fields? What is the value of that field <clears throat> given this field? And we could generate questions, not only features, but actual questions and train on them, like lots of them, have multiple networks. And that might be interesting to see what networks are um, trained well and which ones aren't. And then take like a string, or take characters, or take some kind of splitters like minus or hyphen, or what is the probability of this character occurring when that character occurs in the name? What if we were to take each of the characters as some kind of splitter? Well, what if we were to take two of these characters as some kind of notation of meaning? Three of these characters and evaluate, you know, millions of different possibilities. To look for the association between a name and a type. So you could say, well, what if this name, int, had some type of meaning to that type? And, of course, we could train for um, the actual type names themselves. And I think we could learn, somehow, the programmers' um, naming conventions, somehow. And try and guess the types from the names. Like, that would be pretty awesome. <clears throat> or be able to generate a, type, a name from a type, given this programming convention. Or given these attributes being set in this way, how can we generate the name? And then we would train it on bigger, bigger pieces, and it would find all the insignificant attributes. So I like that idea. And then um, hierarchies of contexts. Like this context contains that context. This if is nested in that if. How do we model that? Well, for one, 
and like different sizes of different sizes of tests. Well, this test is contained by that test. So this data set, this training set, contains everything in that training set and then extra information. So that's one way to model it. And um, the algorithm would say, every single, Every single thing is a different thing in the time series, so it's kind of like a time series. Where it's like, do this, and then do that, and then do this, and then do that. And when it's all finished, take results. So when these things close, the question is, is the expression standalone? So we're going to compare each expression on a standalone basis to every other expression on a standalone basis. Or is it has one containment, two containments, three containments, different levels. Are they columns or are they rows? I think that's where we're kind of getting to this pivot. If we know we have 20 levels of expressions, can't we make 20 columns? And just pack the entire expression in. Like, don't look at it as different data sets. Make it wider. I mean, this is kind of where we get into how wide is the network? And I think we're just going to have to run different experiments and say, okay, let's try encoding the network this way, and let's try encoding the network that way, and see what the results are. So we've got different um, features. We've got pairs of features, like this, triples quadruples, etc. Like given this input, how do we figure out that output? And then when we have all of these different experiments, how do we make sense of them? And there's got to be some kind of measurement of loss. And I think we're going to first pick the things that have the least errors, what can be um, derived automatically. And I think this is uh, going to burn a lot of CPU.
But in the end, what are the findings we want to see? We want to see, like, this integer is used as an array index. This array is the size of y. This integer is used as the maximum of a type, or the minimum of a type. So, if you see a humongous integer, you'll know, okay, that's prob probably, most likely, a type cap, like a max int. If you see a small integer, it's probably some array index, some register index, some enum value. And then, if you see this integer in this context, it's probably an enum value. So the context will be the instruction pointer, maybe, later on, where that's used. The position of the function. So we're going to have to think about that as well. Like how do we model context of what, how is this integer being used, and what expression, how, what's the nesting level. But I think this can also be learned. Like of all these different possibilities, we can add one in and um, add one in. So maybe I should just take a break here for a second and explain myself. <clears throat> if you've given source code representation of your program, you have this big tree or network of nodes with different types. It's kind of like a fuzzy thing. Boy, that tra train is loud. I'm going to go and pause and think about this and then come back after the train stops. All right, welcome back. So I'll give a little introduction for my friend Alex. So given that we have a tree-like structure for compiler graphs, I was looking at how can we break this down. So the basic ones I'm going to start with, I thought, were integer constants and integer types. And <clears throat> we've always asked, what are we trying to do? So what we're trying to do is, given an integer constant, we want to predict what the type is going to be because that's all of the attributes that are given as an ID as well. But that doesn't matter. The ID is irrelevant. That's like a sample ID. I mean, it might be interesting later, like how many, what's the count of IDs for this particular integer constant that has this particular type, because you might have multiple um, instances where a zero is a long, a zero is a short, and a zero is a byte. So your zero can have multiple widths. 
have big zeros with lots of zeros, or little zeros with only a couple of zeros. You could have one bit, one byte. So you got to know the width of your the zero. And then you want to know how many times does this zero occur in the program or in the tree structure for that particular width. We also want to know how often it occurs in total. So those could be some features. So count. Um, what different types, what the counts are. Because I think um, there's only going to be a couple of different types that are used for integer constants. Major ones. So we could have count for the major ones. But we're not saying that all of these features are interesting. So the auto feature, what I've been reading about is the auto feature. So First of all, I'm just thinking we could try and we can create multiple networks and multiple tests. And each test would say, predict the value of this attribute given this one other attribute. Or predict the value of this attribute given these two other attributes. <clears throat> and um, then there's the auto feed, the other auto tool that will say, you know, generate me for this identity, find the relationships to these other ones, and give me the count and the mode and the min and the max as automatic features. So we could say, you know, <clears throat> for all uh, bytes, So, right now it's just a table-to-table -table relationship. But what if we say, this zero is a byte, and there's three of them, right? Um, and that could be one feature, and then the zero is an integer, and there's three of them as another feature. Even though the, int, the type of int and type of byte or just two different values, we could treat them as two different codes, two different tables, so a table of bytes and a table of ints and a table of logs. And, a, and then we could put all of the derived types. If it's a user-defined log, it would go into the log table. If it's a user-defined byte, it would go into the byte table. So we would tag all of the user-defined types in there. And then you have things like unsigned and not unsigned. Qualified and unqualified. <clears throat> Named and unnamed. So we'd have all these different attributes of the type coming in, optional or not optional, and they would flavor the integer constant. But the question is, what are we trying to do? Well, 
So sometimes the integer constant is used as the minimum value of a type. So we have a count. How many times is this used as the minimum value of that type? That's a relationship. That's an automatic feature. How many times is it used as the maximum value of a type or of that type? So we could come up with a lot of different features, either type-specific or non-type-specific, generic or non-generic. Um, and then use that to answer the questions like, given this name, int, can we predict these other attributes, the minimum value and the maximum value? Or given the maximum value, can we predict what the name of the type would be. So, given these synthesized attributes, can we take one attribute and predict another one? Right? So those are different tests we could do. So we're going to generate a whole bunch of different tests to run, and we're going to generate a whole bunch of synthesized attributes based upon this data. And I think that it could come up with some interesting insights, and we're going to look at what are the best predictors and what aren't good predictors. And we do this on a small scale, and then ramp it up a little bit. And they were saying, you know, you generate hypotheses, and then you see, and then you evaluate them, and you pick, pick the best picks. So in the end, it should kind of pick best questions to ask for the training. You know, really, I want to be able to pick, given the first character of a name, given these two characters of a name, can, can we predict the type? Right? Or given this... Uh, integer, can we predict the type or how it's used? And then we can also use that later on for source code scanning or binary scanning. Oh, well, that's the maximum integer. We know that. Probability is very high that it's used as a maximum integer of the normal integer type on, a, on this machine type. We'd have to also train it on multiple compiler versions. <coughs> Yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at. All right. Thanks for listening.